This is the Daily Planet Special News Bulletin. I have I have to show you the 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 replica that I finished, but weeks ago oh, of what's yeah. sitting right behind you there. Yes, it is. The uh the people who made it made an extra for me. Incredible. And you've got a space rat too. Sorry, I'm just going right into that. Oh, Very yeah, nice I, to meet I, you. Sir. When you mentioned space rats the other day, I have two space oh. rats. <laughs> Lois and Clark is our jazz. We're talking about Terry D and Superman. We'll cover it all. At least we'll do what we can. And now it's time for the show. And welcome back to Lois and Clark, the new podcast of Superman. I'm Matt Truex, and if I sound excited, it's because I am. First of all, today is our eighth anniversary. Eight years ago today, we dropped our first episode. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Happy anniversary. And to celebrate, we've got a really cool interview today. Um, as anyone who listens or follows on social knows, the aesthetics of the series are as real and as important to me as the characters, as the story itself. And today, we've got the man behind so much of that, behind the look, behind behind metropolis itself welcome to the show mr jim paul how are you sir i am very good how are you i'm i'm well i i truly such a pleasure to meet you and and connect with you for this and like i said i, I could not be more of a fan of the aesthetics of the show it, it is as much a comfort to me as the story itself so i'm very excited to talk with you well it's comforting to me that there are people who still care and still are interested and it's still a lot of fun for them so that's great when i found out about your podcast i was really surprised and and it's really good and why surprised do you feel like the, the i mean i i felt it personally, but that the show is kind of less remembered, less in the conversation as as other pieces of the Superman mythos? I thought that that was true, but apparently mm. it's not true at all. I mean, <laughs> I just pulled up an article a few minutes ago um, from the in September of this year where the Washington Post. Yeah. The show is hot. And, For the 30th. Yeah. Yeah. And that was great because in its day, it was phenomenal. It mm -hmm. was really I said to the other guys working with me, my best friends on the show, I go, this is going to be the greatest thing we've ever done because it wasn't just uh, its ratings in the United States. In foreign countries, it was the number one show in most yeah. of the world. So it was carrying sort of the ethos of America's, like what we're about and stuff out to everybody. And it was uh, less violent than current stuff is. So it was yeah. appropriate for whole families and kids. I would have people I knew from college or my, or even earlier say to me, I watch this with my children now, which yeah. was really a compliment at the time. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. And, and to what you're saying too, over the many years that I did my rewatch podcast, I got to talk with fans around the world who, who said exactly that, where it's like, by the time I got to it in the U S it was in reruns, it was on TNT every morning. And I found it over a summer and you know, that was the end of my life as I knew it, you know? Um, but they were saying like it was it was the hottest thing. People couldn't wait for the new episodes. It, it was a huge deal, and and thankfully because of the the subject matter, because of you know that it's a part of the Superman legacy, it will continue on. But um, before we get to your side of things with Lois and Clark, I'd love for you to take me back a little bit. Tell me a little about about your early life because you just from the little that we've interacted so far, you seem like a very creative person in many different fields. Was this always true for you as a kid? Um. I uh, I was really talented in the sciences, so I thought that that's what my career was going to be. 
but uh, there was a dichotomy that I didn't realize my parents, one was working on interesting us in the arts and the other was in the sciences. So all the kids in my family were like torn apart about what to do with their future. Um, so in my, I finally switched to theater, uh, technical theater in my senior year of college, I switched from physics to tech theater. Wow. Okay. And then continued on with for a master's there. Um, and thought I was going to be broke because theater people don't get paid. But I went back, I ran across while I was cleaning up the house, I ran across the thesis I wrote for my master's. And it was all about how we needed to take the what we learned in theater and apply them to the visual things like TV and movies. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember um, jumping back to when I was just a toddler and my parents took me to my first movie in a drive-in. It was The King and I. And I sat oh. And I was watching that movie and I was like, how do I do that? <laughs> and I'm like, wow, why did why was I thinking at four or five years old what what could my career be? But it got lost along the way. And I was frustrated in that I didn't see a pathway to getting into the industry. Um, but it all worked out and worked out really well. Certainly did. So it, with that in mind, did you kind of start out in on your I'll say the artistic side of your career in theater before you got into into uh, movies. Yeah, right after college, I was um, teaching at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Okay, and I would manage the theater, and there were four performance spaces, and I was uh, taking care of all the um, art displays, music, dance, uh, theater performances that were in those, dealing with lighting and set design and set building with the kids and. Um, and that was very intense, but good training to know that you can get anything done. You it's <laughs> possible to do anything that first year working at Trinity, we had between all those things, we had 83 events that I had to take care of. So I was at work, all but that's, yeah. okay. that's good. That's good, uh, for your future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was doing that while my wife was finishing her PhD and um, she's a biotech person. Okay. And she goes, um, when she was finished, she goes, okay, I want, um, I want to get more education. I want to do a postdoc in uh, Washington, DC or San Francisco, or they're offering me a job in Buffalo and they'll get you a theater job there. And I'm like, let's go to San Francisco. I want to work at Lucasfilm. And that came to pass. So yeah. Okay, that was, that was fantastic. When it was it just because of San Francisco? Like when did did Lucasfilm did did film in general become kind of um, the goal for you or the next step that you wanted to pursue? Well, I got out here and um, all those um, backstage and TV and oh, I did some TV in the Northeast too. For okay, uh, I was a carpenter on the. Uh, PBS would do shows in the summer. I forget what it's called. American Playhouse. This is why I don't trust IMDb because it's always spotty. There's always stuff missing, but okay. Well, I just looked at my IMDb this morning to find out what you might know. And <laughs> it took me back to one of my assistants when I was working in Toronto said, oh, we've got to make you look younger. And he went and edited out a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, that's it's all gone. From that there. makes a lot of sense to me, because like the way your IMDb looks like all of a sudden you're set designing on Howard the Duck. And I'm like, there's got to be a middle stage here. Somewhere, you know? uh, yeah, I was doing backstage work uh, in San Francisco, the opera house, the ballet uh, theaters, 
uh, TV shows that came to town, but I did get a design job on uh, Howard the Duck at Lucasfilm, set designer that's drawing the blueprints mm -hmm. and worked my way up from there. Did several projects there. Willow was amazing and a lot of fun. I was the art director in charge of all of uh, making um, the comedians. There were two comedians, Rule and uh, I forget his name. Oh, I should have rewatched Willow. I know what you're talking about. Ten inches tall. Yeah. And um, and they came to me and said, hey, we are in trouble here. The the um, all this stuff has been bid out as though we're going to composite it. But the, the lab cannot keep pace and will not finish the movie. Can you build us oversized sets to make people look small? <laughs> and uh, we use that again in Lois and Clark. We had a whole episode sure. of oversized sets, but it was great to build these giant things and solve problems to make people. Uh, look minuscule that must be so fun for you too coming from like there there's i see it all through lois and clark but especially what you're talking about there where it's just like there's theater tricks that are being employed like throughout um some shows like that and and films that like it must be fun to kind of be able to merge those two media for lack of a better word the, those two sensibilities i it, it is a ton of fun i feel blessed that I feel like we worked during the last era of real life effects work mm. and when it, on Lois and Clark. Yeah. Because we were just starting the period where um, digital effects were coming in. We had a digital effects department and the head of that department was no matter what shot came up, no matter what needed to be done, he said, lock it off. <laughs> camera had to not only be on its tripod and never pan, never tilt, never, right. never move. It had to be weighed down so that the camera was rock steady because then the image doesn't, doesn't move at all. And right. it, made his work, it made his work possible to do in the short, short time periods we had. Now, amazing things can be done digitally. And a lot of that's attributed to Lucas putting the money into creating yeah. a whole digital world. Um, but it was fun because if Superman had to run through a wall, we built a wall that he could run through. If he had to, yeah, all those super things. We made it snow on with real <laughs> ice and snow on the back lot of Warner Brothers in a 96 degrees in July. I was going to say, like in September or July, that's incredible. Yeah, it was melting fast. So we had to do it. A I lot. bet. <laughs> but it was crazy fun, crazy fun to do what seemed not possible. That's so cool. Sorry, sorry. Like, I don't want to skirt your career, but I, I love that we're getting into the Lois and Clark stuff already. But like, so it, you'd said specifically, well, let's move out to San Francisco. I want to look work at Lucasfilm. That seemed to happen in pretty short order. When did the the transition down to Los Angeles happen for you? Um, so I did um, a bunch of movies here in San Francisco. Um, it was a great career for me because I was a I was called up whenever a new show came to town. Um, and then a TV series came to town. I worked on, um, I'd have to look at a list, but it's it a radio announcer um, who a former cop gets kicked off to the department. He's a radio late night radio jock shock, uh, shock, shock, shock. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people would call in on the TV series. Yeah, they would call in and you would uh, have a problem and he'd go solve your problem and work on your behalf, like a vigilante in a way. Okay. Interesting. I did that show for three years. Okay. 
And while that show was happening, the producers said, hey, we're going to be doing a new show in L.A. We'd like you to come down and do that. Can you do the pilot for us? And so I did the pilot in Chicago and Los Angeles. That became Reasonable Doubts. That was Marley Matlin. Yeah. Carmen. Um, I was just looking at that today because like, I think, I guess it was the project before that, but but somewhere in there, I think in 91, this is me doing IMDb forensic work. So please okay. tell me if I'm wrong. But at some point you start working with who I'll call like the usual suspects of the Lois and Clark credits where you got like Robert Singer and Randy Zisk and Phillips Gricky, a, a few other names there. And is that kind of how you got in with them? Basically, you, you'd done a show that worked well and then kind of became part of their troop, part of their crew, essentially moving yeah, forward. I, uh, Bob Singer was the head of that group. And uh, um, from my working here, he hired me here on. Mm -hmm. um, in San Francisco. In San Francisco on Midnight Caller. Okay. So then he said, can you come do this pilot, which became Reasonable Doubts. It was about a law team uh, where Marley Matlin's uh, deaf. And so mm -hmm. it was a real breakthrough on stuff. And I built um, built out a courthouse and stuff like that at Warner Brothers. Cool. And um, I would commute every week because I didn't. I am devoted to my family. My at the time, just my wife. Mm -hmm. So I would um, fly down on the first flight on Monday morning and come home Friday afternoon every week. Wow! Uh, because I wanted to make sure that all stuck together. Yeah. Um, a lot of work, but but an amazing opportunity, it sounds like. It was an amazing opportunity. And so the pilot became a series, um, and it just snowballed from there. Mm. So I think the next 15 years of work were all in Los Angeles, and I would go down every week to do that. Um, and then uh, it broadened. And yeah. I, a week in Chicago, I mean, a year in Chicago or a year in Philadelphia, a year in Toronto, I was commuting cross country. And always kind of commuting, always kind of keeping um, San Francisco as the home base. Yeah. Wow. That, that's that's a lot of commuting. I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, so so when for you, and I believe kind of Robert Singer, that whole mm -hmm. crew um, came in to Lois and Clark like mid-season one, when when did that first come up uh, in your memory that that you might transition over to that show? Uh, he got hired and he called me and said, can you be here tomorrow? Wow. And wow. That's intense. Had you seen any, I mean, had you heard of it? Had you seen any of it by then? <laughs> <laughs> but it was tremendous fun. It was really, really great. I still keep in touch with a bunch of the guys from that because it was a great bonding experience. Oh, I bet. And, and, and like you're talking, obviously you've had a lot of theme work. You've you've done genre stuff before with Lucasfilm and whatnot, but you're going from essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a legal drama to the craziest world, you know, the most comic booky thing. That must have been definitely a trial by fire feel. Uh, I I must say the work at Lucasfilm was helpful to that because yeah. uh, that was at IL. I was based at ILM. Incredible. Midst of all the effects work that was being done, even if I wasn't on a specific project, I'm walking through uh, the sets and camera work for the Star Wars movies and stuff. So yeah. I already had a great base in effects and what could be done. Mm -hmm. And I started jumping around here a little bit. I've only heard a couple of your episodes, but you talked- <laughs> That you listened at all. Thank you. And I'm sorry. Oh, no, but... <laughs> they're, they're great. But you actually picked one moment uh, that I remember vividly that, where Lex Luthor's uh, pulling his face off. Oh, yes. And you said, 
was that a gimmick or was that a visual effect? And um, I, I think I was directing that show, but I'd have to go back and look. It was definitely the one before you directed and maybe you directed oh, okay. that scene too. I don't know. So I was like, we can accomplish this so that you don't have to have a locked off camera if I build it as a reverse set. So there was a hole in the wall where the mirror was incredible. Uh, a foreground actor who all you saw was the back of his head. Right. Who reaches and starts pulling off the rubber and then they're matching to each other, which you notice is maybe just a little bit off. But, yeah. but that allowed us to come across the back of his head and slide in. And you couldn't do that with, we didn't have the capabilities to do that rapidly for computer work at the time. Sure. And then every item that was on the shelf in front of the mirror was recreated in reverse oh. on the other side of the wall so that they would all move in the same perspective as the camera moved. And I it, love this so much. Great. It proved what could be done visually and didn't made the camera put the camera in motion. So that was uh, nice. And I, I'm sure that all cost money, but that must have saved uh, money in special effects work too, just to not have to do that. I I, I love that. And and just apologies in advance for like the whole point of that podcast was, was loving it and picking every knit that you possibly could. But like, I love the, the tactile nature of the show and, and those special effects tricks. And even just the simple like, Dean throws his cape up and then everyone's got their head up in the sky. And like the, those little, <laughs> those little cheats I'll say, but like those little things just like are so endearing to watch. That's I uh, thank you for confirming yeah, that that was even, a we, trick. That's so we cool. We even had some of the same stuff they used in the, not in the original Superman TV series. Like there were times when he like had to like all of a sudden, like leave the scene to you know, sure. off and fly. And the effects guys have a springboard. It's like a yep. uh, wedge-shaped board with a big spring in between. And he jumps to it and it they pop it so that it gives extra oomph to his takeoff. So he accelerates as he as he goes up without making it look like he bent his legs. You know what I right. mean? Right. Oh, that's so cool. And even I remember like George Reeves would always feel like there's a bar just off camera and he's going to swing in and like land like that. Oh, yeah. I think you guys did. I don't yeah, know if you I, did the bar, but there were tricks like that from time to time when Dean would like land by Terry on the street or something. I wasn't a fan of the blur out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really became common because even though he's very, very fast, there's still time. There's mm -hmm. time that it needs to that creates tension between when he leaves and when he's going to save Lois or when he's going to fix the, the big problem, yeah. it builds momentum instead of him just instantly being somewhere else. Yep. I totally get that. I couldn't agree more. Um, so um, back to when you first came on, you're inheriting a show. It's mid-season one, but it's got a pretty established, pretty pretty broad look. Um, were you happy with the show that you that you were inheriting at that point? Or were you looking forward to like... Season two, for me, kind of marks a shift in the aesthetics. Um, and I assume that has a lot to do with you. And, and I'm wondering if you were kind of like itching throughout season one to to get to some some changes. Uh, right off the bat, I was um, made aware of how difficult some parts of the scenery was to mm. do the camera moves and be where you needed to be with the camera and stuff like that. Um I always, when I'm designing, I'm trying to also think from the perspective of the director and the lighting people and mm -hmm. camera and where it's going to be. So I try to 
design into the scenery methods to both create planes, to create depth within the shot yeah. and uh, routes that are easy to get to and easy to open up for the camera to pull back. Because the camera can't be on top of people all the time. It's got to get back wide enough to get the shots you need. Of course. Um, uh, the uh, producers had them write into the show that there was a fire at the Daily Planet so that <laughs> I have an opportunity to change it up between seasons. That was an ask from me where I'm like, was that just happenstance or was that that was a decision oh, of like, now we have an excuse to kind of revamp the set a bit. Yeah, it was an intentional method to uh, improve the f filming ability of the set and give it some more energy. Amazing. And is that too widely? Like, and again, if I'm getting too specific, forgive me, but like, um, especially a Lois and Clark's desks goes from, I feel, feel like bigger, older wood, big, heavy thing to a little more uh, streamlined, a little, they've got kind of the, the panes of glass there between them. Like it's just all feels a little more open and, and less cluttered for lack of a better word. Yeah. I was trying to um, take it in that transition from uh, I've filmed a lot in San Francisco and been in an awful lot of real places. And if you mm -hmm. went newspaper um, offices in San Francisco, the reporters' spaces, they were deep, this deep in folders and old magazines and papers and research. They like never cleaned their clutter out. Sure. So uh, as you need to replace stuff, you like modernize and they are very swoopy and look like uh, TV studios now, like where you do the morning show and stuff. Sure. So it was an opportunity to uh, modernize a bit and create more depth and make it easier for people to film and achieve what they had to get done in the day and to create a, a more updated uh, aesthetic. Mm. Um, when you're, when you're doing that and you're saying things like update and, and innovate and whatnot, like, are there, for you, you're overseeing a whole team of different artists and builders and all this. Do you have uh, kind of guiding principles, maxims that that you're kind of putting in place uh, when you're taking over a show like this? Because it's it's so heightened, but there is that reality to it. You thread an interesting line, you know. Uh, I don't know how to answer that because it's got okay. it's got to be something that uh, the producers want as well, mm -hmm. um, because the cost and the time. Um, on other shows, I would have writer, even on this show, I would have writers get, come up with an idea and they'd approach me personally because they were going, they didn't want to get hammered with that is impossible. We can't do that. Right. So they would come to me and say, can you make a space that evokes this for the layer? You know, we all always had, sure. a can you, can you do this within the time frame and money we have? And then I'd. That was great because we get a script typically eight days before we're going to start filming it. And so we have to work really, really fast. So yeah. when I heads up, I can get research done, get sketches ready, get people armed and ready to make sure that we can get it built and make it happen. Yeah. That's, and there must be times too, like you're talking about uh, layers and whatnot, there must be times too where you're trying to look at what we have already and and can can you repurpose parts of this set to now be a sewer or whatnot, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, the sewer set was repurposed from a bunch of stuff. The one where Lois is, has all the rats around her. Head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she filmed that, I think, at 2 a.m. What a trooper. God, oh God. No, but, thank you. 
I thought was great because we've had a, all, all this water in there flooded between the areas that people walked on. I loved that set. That was fun. That's that's so cool. But then, of course, like it seemed like anytime John Shea's character came back up, like you were back in some sewer or whatever, like that. But it always felt a little different. But that makes sense that you're kind of grabbing pieces to 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 bring it together again. Yeah, because like I said, the the speed with with which TV works is pretty incredible and tight. Um, and I'd have one stage at Warner Brothers that would be we'd rebuild the entire stage every episode. It was fantastic. Nobody was in those days. The money doesn't seem like much now, but back in the day, it, nobody was doing that on series TV. Nobody was. You'd have your standing sets. That's the mm -hmm. ones you have all the time, and then you might have an apartment or somebody's bedroom or something added on or a visit to a restaurant but lois and clark was such a big team of people that the money people at warner brothers preferred for us not to leave the studio lot because the cost was very high that was a question i had yeah we're... yeah we lose time when we're shooting away from the studio so the director's got less time you can get a visual you can't get any anywhere else but it um it's expensive so they would often give me leeway to spend more money in order to keep us on the lot. Interesting. So like that is what, again, I, I, we connected the other day. I started as a tour guide at Warner Brothers and now, now work there constantly. And I, I love being a fan of the show and being in that space because it's just like, I feel like anytime I go to a new office, I'm like, oh, this was LNN. Oh, this was Star Labs. Oh, this was whatever. Like, does that get difficult for you time after time? And, and I'm sure you're working with locations managers and whatnot too, but it's like, were there ever moments where you were like, there, there's no way we have a corner on this lot that I can turn into NASA or wh whatever it is? No, I don't. My goal is to never delay the camera and never say no to what is needed. So it there were times when it would be hard, like when ER would be shooting the night before yeah. right there and we'd be right here the mm -hmm. next morning. But um, I just considered that the thrilling part of the job, that it was constantly different and constantly new and solving problems that seemed like they couldn't be done. It's, that's that's awesome. It's been really cool, both in uh, my career and in my personal life. I never quit and never say no and never try to give up or I just like regenerate for the next day and try to find a new path when there's. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so uh, Obviously, too, you've got you, I can't imagine how many plates you're trying to spin overseeing all of this for the show you're working with like i said tons of different artists different builders in, in different departments here within the the art department do you have a favorite aspect of being a production designer for a show like this well my favorite thing about being a production designer is is there's zero boredom because i get and especially on like lois and clark because they're everything keeps changing yeah uh, well, you can work on a hospital show and you do people's bedrooms and you do the hospital. And once the hospital's built, that would be boring to me. Yeah. I I like the variety because it makes it exciting. That makes sense. And also, like speaking of exciting and variety, not only are you production designing the vast majority of the show, you wind up directing four episodes, which I, I want to get into your episodes a little bit, but like how did that come about? Was that something that you always kind of had your eye on um, when you came to the show or just something that you always kind of wanted to 
try out in your career? I definitely wanted to try it out. I thought I would, as a kid, as a in my teens, I would direct little dramas in the neighborhood and stuff. <laughs> and I wanted to get there. I'm more interested in the visuals than anything else, but I did want to uh, direct and I um, had been offered an opportunity um, on the show that was up in San Francisco, Midnight Caller. Okay. And I said, no, I don't want to fail. I want to make sure I do a really good job. So I delayed um, making that happen. Okay. But then when this came, I mean, it's fun. It's, I, I can only imagine, but it's like you're saying you delayed it on a midnight caller. You're now on the crazy show where you're doing eight different things every week and you're going to direct them. Being busier is okay with me. <laughs> it's Being, incredible. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, I've been exposed to a lot of new directors over the years on this mm -hmm. show and others. And where you come from to become a director for the first time, everybody tends to lean in on what their specialty was before they arrived because that's mm. really well. Uh, so when you said you work with a lot of different people, like I'm in charge of my art department with a series of people doing artwork and planning, um, the set decorators, the, uh, the prop people, the painters, uh, some interaction with wardrobe, less on a TV show than on a movie. Sure. But it's still important. So there's a vast number of people always asking me questions. And that is the hardest part for a new director because new guys will be like, let me get back to you on that. They won't make decisions out of fear of being wrong. Mm. Get back to you on that. Let me tell you later. And the amount of decisions just keeps piling up and the pressure uh, sometimes doesn't go well. <laughs> but uh, since I'm already dealing with large teams of people, um, that answering questions and picking a path was easy. Yeah, and that makes it sense. It made the transition to directing easier than I think it was for other people I observed. Uh, so that was fun. You know, like, um, I think it was Patton said um, that uh, perfection is the enemy of completion. So if you try to be perfect, you're never going to get it done. Fair enough. And, and I'm sure, too, that you're you're kind of bolstered in that you're used to making decisions quickly and you're living and breathing this show like you've got a feel for it. Oh, and the cast was amazingly supportive. The people on the show were so wonderful to work with. And I knew them well mm -hmm. before I was directing episodes. So that went quite well. Terry's fantastic. Dean was, yeah. That, that's that's awesome to hear because I have like th at least three out of four of the episodes that you directed could safely be called three of the most romantic episodes on the show that that is that very focused on the the Lois and Clark on the relationship of it was that anything that you keyed into or is this just luck of the draw of the episodes that are coming up for you because they're they're pretty big episodes the ones that you wound up directing yeah um I didn't get to choose that most because of my pivotal position in managing a lot of people mm -hmm. I was typically um put into the season at the last last episode for the fall okay. that was shot or the first episode for the spring or the last episode of the series because in those positions like if i'm coming in right after christmas i can do a bunch of prep time when everybody is not working and right. be 
and keep, be on top of both jobs at once and uh, make it happen. So for example, the Tony Curtis episode. Yeah, the, the first wedding. Yeah, when I went, yeah, home, I when I went home, it was going to be um, Tim Curry. And when I oh, came, wow. came back to Warner Brothers, it was Tony Curtis. But he was incredible. He was I'm, so much fun because it's like the first TV he had done, the first project he had done in decades. And really? all these people at Warner's kept coming to the set to meet him and talk to him. The poor guy didn't have enough time to like work on his lines because he was constantly greeting people at the edge of the set. And he was just so gracious, you know, like we had an effects problem with the camera not catching right when this window blew up exactly. Okay. So it had to be reset and it's after midnight and he goes, go ahead and send Terry, shoot out Terry. I'll stay. Wow. He was the biggest star of the 1950s. Yeah. The one box office star. And he's like, make it good for the star of this show instead of for him. Wow. That's an incredibly gracious actor. Yeah, he was good. Wow. That's such a, it's, it's, it's such an incredible experience that you can work with him, not only the other cast of this show too. But. Before I directed that episode, I watched everything he, he had done. And so he's mimicking some of his performances from the early years of his most famous shows as he's like pursuing her on the couch and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It was interesting. It was, it was cool. That's, that's very cool. And it's, it's interesting to me that I assume it speaks to you, your talent and your relationship with the producers that they trusted you with these episodes. You've got the first date, you've got the first wedding. Um, you've got the return of Tempest in season four. Like that's, I feel like not something you'd give to someone you didn't believe in. Yeah. I, um, possibly one of my faults is that I'm easily emotional. <laughs> I, if I'm tired, I can cry easily about uh, something that I'm touched by. But I think that side of me helps me with uh, episodes like you're talking about because it helps me identify with the emotions that are going on between the characters. Um, I, one of the, your other podcasts I listened to, the two of you were debating um, where uh, Lois says to Clark, make love to me. Yes. And me, John Doe, yeah. Uh, your guest, is it Christine? Christine. Yeah, she was like, it doesn't work for my the guy in my life and me, yeah. but it worked for her in the moment. And I think it's a reflection of anybody who's famous. Because if you're a really famous person, you become really guarded about people who approach you and become part of your life. Sure, okay. And who you fall in love with, you always are at odds of, are they really truly in love with me or is it the fame and fortune that they're attracted to? When do I know that this person is perfect for me? I think mm. it's also why you tend to see an awful lot of uh, celebrities marrying celebrities because there's less of that worry that there's an imbalance in the relationship. Right. Less of that awe in the, the glitz of it or whatever. So for me, what works about what she said is not something you or I can say to somebody. It makes, it's just too much, but it works there because she's giving him affirmation that she's in love with him, Clark, mm -hmm. and not just enamored of Superman and still believing that that's the side uh, she loves of him. You see yeah. what I mean? Uh, absolutely. I see now why you were a good director for these episodes, sir. <laughs> 
I hope so. I hope I do a good job all the time. But we'll oh, see. absolutely. Um, you got some. You got some weird scripts, but they're, they're great episodes. You know? Yes, there are. There were. A, there was a lot of stuff going on. Yes. Um, okay, so I, I I do want to get to to where you are in your life too. But do you mind if I take some nerdy seconds to ask you about some specifics here? Sure, whatever you want. Okay, so let's look at the set. We talked about the Daily Planet already, um, but you also just by virtue of coming in mid-season one kind of inherited Lois and Clark's apartments, uh, which were fairly established. Though I'm sure you made changes throughout the years. And then ultimately they moved in together. They got their brownstone. Were, were there elements of those existing sets for the apartments that, that you were conscious of that uh, you either fixed during the time or made sure to avoid when you got to their new space? I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. It was. Um <laughs> Because and I, feel free to answer that to all of these questions. It's no, been I think what's thirty whatever year. Yeah, is when it comes to uh, 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 the space you live in. There's I've done hundreds and hundreds of those, and so yeah. in out picking that out of things, I don't remember exactly the thought process. The things that stuck with me were the things that were extraordinarily different. Yeah. Okay challenging to get done like building noah's ark in a week or they would they even came to me and said if a tv or movie wants to shoot a story in an airplane there's a uh big warehouse in la yep everybody drives to that warehouse and you pick which airplane you're going to shoot in and that's that's how you take care of it but they came to me and said uh that's going to cost us too much money to move the company to there and film that so we need you to build build an airplane on stage and that was yet yet another interesting challenge so i drew up molds because airplanes or interiors are repetition of Mm those panels drew up molds went down to the staff department which was fantastic and said i need you to vacuum form these so they vacuum formed them over and over Uh Um, we built out the interior to use on stage that's that's incredible. Is that something um I know you you worked at the the lot before that but like is that the value of working on a big studio lot like Warner Brothers where you've got those those fabricators you've got the print shops oh, yeah. and whatnot kind of everybody on site basically your 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 art department and your builders are producing right there on on site with you. It's a tremendous resource. It's been diminished in in time. Warner Brothers still has a lot of that going on universal switched to a different model years ago where they wanted it to be profit-based for working within each department. But I was still uh, coming to the studios. I wasn't one of those employees who was a permanent studio employee. I was sure. show as thing they came along. And in the way back days, the 30s through the 50s and into the 60s, they'd have one art department for the whole Warner Brothers. And everybody would work up in that one art department. And you could have your set designer work on something for three days, and then he's working on another show, and then he's coming back to you. And Mm -hmm. um, now we're insular and just on our specific shows. So when I got to the Warner's lot, they still had uh, a lot of the trades where you could go and people had expertise with making you could even get doorknobs made you could bring them one doorknob and they would cast metal doorknobs that matched that era the louis the 15th doorknob you had (laughs) um and the uh the scenic artists are incredible you know backdrops made and all kinds of beautiful things it it's uh 
in my time, it was a little bit less direct because we weren't working with each of those trades all the time. Mm -hmm. But it's it's so fantastic to have the resources. And a lot of those resources over time have been diminishing. You know, if you you've you've been over to the Western Street at Warner Brothers, and when you see it in movies, you see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And it saves a fortune to shoot on the lot and gives you time time and money to make it, the story richer. There's a little part uh, just north of there called the jungle. And mm -hmm. the jungle, it was a little underused. It had very, all this foliage and ponds and stuff like that. But um, I walked into the jungle one day and they were filming uh, a Dustin Hoffman movie about, it was an Ebola-like disease that had escaped from- Oh, Outbreak? Yeah, they were okay. filming the ape reactions in the jungle. What? And I'm like, holy cow. I mean, think about how wonderful this is that this magic moment in movie making is happening here in the middle of Warner Brothers. Yeah. Instead of them shipping somebody off to some faraway place to get it and bring it back. I loved the studio lot. When um, I don't know if you remember the LA earthquake. I, I wasn't out here for it, but I, I certainly know of it. Yeah. Yeah, don't hang around me. I have been <laughs> of every major earthquake in California since I moved here. Suddenly very glad you're in San Francisco as opposed to me. Okay, good. To, okay. So like I said before, I used to commute back and forth and I my standard was to take the first flight on Sunday morning. But one of the episodes, we were rigging a, a set for an earthquake. So uh, the team had to come in an extra early. So I flew okay. in on Sunday. And um, was on the set at four in the morning to supervise how that was getting rigged for the earthquake scene. And the earthquake hit. Oh, God. Okay. But uh, part of the result of that happening is uh, Warner Brothers flooded really badly. Uh, all the pipes were breaking or getting set off within the stages and the stages were getting flooded. I went to the fire department. They wouldn't shut the, anything off out of fear of a fire getting spreading. Sure. I, and the offices at the studio that day because nobody was there to answer the phones to say we're not filming today. Oh my God. But because there was a lot of storage under the stages, all this stuff that we had no idea existed came up to dry out. So these drawings of the Warner Brothers were fantastic. They used to have an ocean liner on the Warner Brothers back lot. You know those scenes where they're on the dock and they're waving to somebody sure. up on the edge? Of, Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the side of an ocean liner so that you could like do oh a scene without leaving. You know, there's a lot of office buildings that didn't exist, that existed when I was there, but didn't exist before that. Sure. That was all back lot used for everything. If you walk on this New York street and Warner brothers, you're going to see these little brass discs. Mm -hmm. Those brass discs have a number and you would reserve that number for your filming because you'd be at that number and you'd be looking North and there'd be somebody right behind you on another number looking South <laughs> with their camera and you'd film at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was insanity in the really huge heydays of the studio system the studio system days right yeah that's incredible i never knew i've never heard that that ocean liner story are you, just out of curiosity are you in a soundstage when the earthquake hits yeah i was personal uh, fear of mine and all you know i i had already been through the san francisco earthquake before that oh god so yeah. i froze because i felt myself safer in the middle of the stage than uh running outside because uh sure 
San Francisco, most of the people who died, it was the facades peeling off and falling on them. Um, so most of the crew ran to the outside and I was in total darkness, had no idea which way was up and just stood there. Somebody opened the door to the street and it's four four fifteen in the morning. So there's no lights out there. And right. after my eyes adjusted, I could see just a little light, lighter gray rectangle that which I headed for. And I uh, exited the building, ran to the payphone at the gate, called my wife in San Francisco, said, you got to call our friends and make sure they're okay. Then you have to call all the relatives because the phone lines are going to go dead soon. You know, the yeah. company will limit calls. She goes, I can't call them. It's four in the morning. They're, they're I up. I can't wake them up. I'm like, there's <laughs> nobody in Los Angeles who's asleep right now. <laughs> Oh, that's terrifying. Okay. Just personal fear. I am an East Coast boy. I will never get used oh, to it. Oh, yeah. I I, uh, I lived uh, high school and college was on the East Coast. But it sounds like you've kept the trial by fire, gotten accustomed to it. But the smallest tremor and I, I've suddenly got the cats with me and, and hidden away. You sent me this picture. Yes. Which is of the painting of the ear on the uh, that was a that was a fun episode. We had to um, create a museum of lost artwork. Yes. It was original, but nobody knew existed for a very special collector. And yeah. To, to Just to set that up real quick, I, I sent you some visuals. And one of them that I want to talk about is the is the better self-portrait of Vincent van Gogh from, from Lex's beautiful art collection that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, they, there were, we had uh, eight or 10 of those to create really fast. So... Mm -hmm enlisted a painter who I knew was both quick and she matches everything. She matches brushstroke and, and texture and everything in a painting. Um, and she did a, a series of them. Some of them to spread it out. I did a couple of them digitally by taking really blue boy and yeah. yellow boy myself, and then having it printed on, on canvas. Mm -hmm. I was really early in bringing computers to this, the art departments. Uh, the studios did not want to pay for any computer equipment at all. And I felt I could create a bigger world uh, by having it. So I paid for com my computer and the computers my assistants worked with. And that let us create great props, you know. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to a newspaper, we would lay it out exactly the way it should look and then i would have it printed in petaluma pick it up on the weekend and bring it back down with me in petaluma really yeah there was a local newspaper that i had used on tucker and they would turn their press on and turn their press off and we'd have like 150 copies because it's so fast but oh, then it's awesome. on real newsprint real ink real yeah. articles built into it instead of uh, a title stuck onto a a plain a regular yeah stock newspaper so well let's let's get into this we're talking about art we're talking about graphics i i've spent as you might have seen many joyful hours replicating pieces from the show it, that's it's cool. my way of of kind of being close to it um when you were doing things like that when you were looking at painters uh was that kind of um i don't know did you have a, a crew that worked with you from project to project at that point or are you employing people on the lot when you look at you know someone to do the van gogh or something like that or is it a mix of both it's a mix of everything because when it comes to a specialty thing uh i don't have them on staff i mm -hmm. the staff i have are those people working day to day week to week 
Um, and so uh, when it comes to odd talents, model making, all kinds of things, I have to seek out somebody on the lot or from another company to get it done quickly. And then you're saying too yourself, you you were jumping in uh, well, the yellow boy being yeah. the example, but yeah, you you would jump in with that too. That's incredible. And, and with you were talking about the Daily Planets. Um, I'm the type of nerd that can tell you exactly when the letterhead yes, of the Daily yes, Planet changed throughout seasons. Yeah. Does that come from you were you were talking earlier? Does that come from uh, reflecting things in the real world that you'd seen of wanting to be a little more current, or were you trying to kind of heighten the aesthetic in in some way? Where did decisions like that come from? Because I imagine it's much easier to use the same Daily Planet header from season one and use it throughout the show and not think about it again. I don't remember why we changed it other than to to make a stronger aesthetic like the especially the the uh logo from one to two gets much easier to read and understand with the the tilt mm -hmm. i don't remember the switch to doing color but i do remember that that era when usa today was always doing a color cover and it was creating a lot of attention for them compared mm. to it's just an expensive process for real newspapers. So I think we were just trying to reflect that change in era. That makes sense. The Daily Planet would be ahead of the curve on things like that. Absolutely. Um, okay. Props. I, I'm, I'm so in love with the props on the show, as you can imagine. Um, there is no shortage of strange sci-fi device or big gun <laughs> or whatever on this show. Um, and I love them all. Are, are you... Generally, for stuff like that, are you trying to do builds to keep it in the aesthetic of the show, or are you renting pieces and augmenting, or is it, again a little bit both? We're doing a lot, a lot of all of that because yeah. there's stuff you can rent from special effect from houses, rent prop houses in LA that have particular looks. But um, uh, when I was looking working at ILM, mm -hmm. I would have them building models and stuff for me, and you know all that Star Wars stuff was created with a lot of creativity and it was made more complex looking by having hundreds and hundreds of model kits and selecting things out and gluing them together in a non-normal pattern yep so uh if we had an immediate need for a prop and i wanted to be specific about its look i might run out to toys r us buy six different things come back to the art department figure out how to repurpose the various parts and then hand it to somebody to get it all assembled and ready for a couple of days later. It was a way of uh, keeping costs down and mm -hmm. being more involved in the look than just letting it be a rental item. And being it's something you might've seen in another yeah. sci-fi show or anything. Because I feel when you rent stuff, you can take people out of the moment. And I, especially nerds like me, who years later would have been like, that's from whatever, you know, <laughs> in, in, in that vein too, there's no renting of this. And I feel like there's no way to do it quickly. In my favorite episode of all time, they introduce the time machine with HG Wells. And you've got a, a obviously your crew is taking reference, taking inspiration from the time machine, the, the film from the 60s. But is there any worry when you come up with something like that that like oh this is we're not going to be able to pull something like this off that quickly or is it just again just run and gun and we've got to do it so let's put everything we can towards it um it's not identical to the original the no 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 but but certainly some but aesthetic elements of it uh, some similarities which help people to feel and understand what it is mm -hmm. um rapidly and 
Uh, no, I just thought it was more interesting in a, to actually go ahead and, and make it happen. I didn't worry about not finishing anything. I don't know why, but I didn't. That's, that's incredible. This is why you were good at the job, sir. <laughs> this makes sense. I do remember one series I was on. I can't remember which it was. The producers came to me and they said, um, we're going to take a, we're going to shift start of the season by a week. And we're going to tell the studio it's because the sets aren't ready. And that Oof. wasn't the truth. They had another issue going on, but I don't, I don't think it was uh, this show at all. I think it was something else because okay. I remember this show moving like a, a clock. It was, <laughs> it was fun to being at Warner brothers at that time. Oh my gosh. ER, the people were wandering around the back lot all the time. Um, yeah. You had friends starting up while you guys were there too. I'm trying to think what else. Batman, we had penguins on. Batman. God, that's right. They would have been, sh yeah. yeah. That's a that's a cool time. Penguins are so cute. <laughs> in the refrigerated. Um, yep, we had them uh, going stages, in and out of a refrigerated a, truck. A refrigerated Even truck. Overnight. And a refrigerated and, stage. Oh my gosh, that set was so cold inside. Oh, the money that must have cost too. That's insanity. That's crazy. Uh, um, okay, so the, the entire time, uh, we've been having this talk. I've done my best to, to stay focused on you while you've got two of my favorite props from the show just hanging out casually behind you. Yeah, these um, are the extra ones. <laughs> these are the extra ones. Excuse me. Yes, these are not screen used, let's say. Um, you've got two custom toys. You've got the Christmas craze of 1994, the Atomic Space Rat, and the custom Dean Kane Superman doll from the episode that you directed, Toy Story. When it comes to stuff like that, are you guys... Are you hiring someone to mold that stuff and and you know model it completely from scratch, or are you, like you're saying, going to Toys R Us and grabbing toys? Because I will oh. tell you, I have spent many hours online trying to figure out what the base of that Superman figure could be, and uh, never figured it out. I could call up the woman who did it, but um, <laughs> clearances. You know, you need to like bring things forward. We do clearances all the time. Uh, there's more time on a movie because I've got like three months to get something cleared. Uh, but on a TV show, it's really fast. So sometimes, well, all, all the time, it's more expedient for me to hire somebody to sculpt it and pay them that than to get all the layers of clearance that would have to happen. You know, we can mm -hmm. send image to uh, the clearance department, to the lawyers and say, get this cleared and they will do their best to call up the toy company that makes it. But the responses don't happen fast enough. Sure. So that that Superman model was handmade in order yeah. to avoid having it exist as a toy. Space rats too. We couldn't just take a toy because we would be defaming somebody else's thing. There were some little quacky ducks that came along and exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all that stuff has to be made. They came out a little different than I expected. <laughs> um, I must say that I. When I walk on the set and sometimes I'm alarmed that things didn't come out exactly the way I had envisioned them, mm -hmm. I, I tell myself, okay, just pause and think and figure out, will it work anyway? Because every time you back up, you're not just spending money, you're spending time you don't have uh, to make it exactly like what you wanted. Right. So, um uh, I try to advise other people that in their regular lives don't like get too wound up with the detail 
being what you expected if what was done is the same or better. Right. It's still going to work for you in some way or another. So that, that, that will bring me to my last geeky question for you. And it is about my favorite prop possibly of all time, but certainly of this show was, um, and I think one that was somewhat existing when you came on, but then you, um, you and your team changed it a bit was the spaceship that Superman came to earth in. I don't know why, but as a kid, like I just honed in on that thing. And that, that has been an obsession ever since I have a wife now who said, yes, one day I will grant you the, the time and whatever it will take to do a replica of it. There, there's the, the first one that we see again, I think you inherited it, but do you have any memory of working with this? There were changes that had to be made to it during your time of it, it was in one of your episodes for the first time that you actually see, you know, Jarrell and Laura on Krypton put the baby in there. Do you have any memory of this thing at all? Yeah, it did have to be modified. Um, the thing that was most striking is that some portion of it was stolen while it was in storage. So we had to work fast. Yeah. That okay. situation. And it'd take me a while to remember what what we needed to do quickly. No, it's so, but I mean, as far as I know, the whole thing was stolen. So for the end of season three, I assume your team had to put one together very quickly. And it it doesn't it doesn't match perfectly but there were changes made for the story i thought of it when you were just talking now of like if there was any memory of like coming to set and saying like that's not what it was but it will work yeah i uh i don't remember i do no worries i don't um it doesn't bother me that there can be an evolution of something mm -hmm. if you watch this series of batman movies all the all the props, all the cars change every single, all the actors. Batman's a different. Yeah, exactly. Every single time. Alfred's the only current here. Yeah. <laughs> Alfred and Gordon. Yeah. Uh, so uh, while consistency is good, sometimes you have more time to improve something or make it work in a way like putting the baby in um, that is necessary and you got to make it, make it happen. Yep, so, fair, sorry, fair I'm enough. Fully, I'm not fully uh, cognizant of that 30 year ago moment. No, that's fine. I'm I, sorry. I had you I on the line. Know it was I had 30 to years ask. ago. It feels like it's 10 to me. It really <laughs> is. It was really a special time. It's a really good, good show to be a part of. And the work is still just so enjoyable. Again, it's uh, my wife will fall asleep to friends if she can't sleep. I'll fall asleep to Lois and Clark. And I, I hope that it's taken as the compliment that it's meant to be. You know? Oh, friends was uh, you know, one of the benefits of my flying back and forth to San Francisco is that I could fully devote myself uh, to the show while I was at the studio. Mm -hmm. And so I'd typically be in at 6 a.m. And I would typically leave at between 8 and 10 p.m. Wow. Day. But I remember friends, the writer's office was directly above my office over at the old Lorimore building. And uh, I would hear them every Thursday night, late into the night, working out what to change after they had just seen the last rehearsal before filming. And I'd be downstairs working late to try to get whatever had to happen done. I, in my career, uh, you know, you can be sort of some production designers are very insular. They show up at a meeting, they get the script, they talk to the director, they go out on search locations, and then they go by themselves and their team to get things done. Mm -hmm. I like to make myself available to production as much as possible. So I will be with the director, the assistant director, and the producers in an inordinate amount of the day. And I make up for what I have to do art direction wise 
by coming in extra early and staying late to wow. to get stuff done. But I am so much better informed about what's anticipated and how it's going to be used. And I can sure. help help the director more visually. Directors are totally different. You get guys who are really good with the actors. Mm -hmm. You could show them a drawing, you could show them a model, and they're like, I don't know what this means. So on a series like this, where the new set's going to come in in just a few days, we can't like build it two weeks ahead of time for them to see it. Right. Those kind of directors, some of them would walk onto the set and go, Jim, how do I shoot this? And I would go, okay, you do your establishing shot back here and they walk in here and then you come over, do it over here and an over here. And you'll only have to pull this wall once behind you. You put it back <laughs> in, you come to the other side and uh, I give them a layout of the shots. But see, that training was what helped me when I had to direct because I would already visually have worked out how the scene would happen within the space. So yeah. the space was designed to make the scene as much as it was designed to be a character in the story. Again, it speaks to why you became uh, seemingly a regular with the producers that you worked with on this show, where like you've you've got all those skills and, and clearly love it if you're spending that type of extra time to be there and devote yourself to it. We kind of touched on this, but I assume after Lois and Clark, I mean, do you are you ready for something big? Like you you did Time Cop not soon after that? Or are you looking for something that's a little more like a legal drama or something, something a little easier? I did uh, Time Cop at the same time. At the same time, excuse me. Yeah, so there was a time when I was on the roof of at Universal, looking back at Warner Brothers, lit up filming Lois and Clark that evening. So I was jumping back and forth between the lots are right wow. now. Yeah, they're yeah, right down the street. But uh and like we talked about before, sometimes we get in a time crunch. Like when we had to do the arc set, that was just an awful lot to get done in a short period of time. So we would, the the paint and construction guys would work, we'd have three overlapping shifts. So it'd, it'd be 24 hours a day. And I would come back in the middle of the night to get the next group of people, answer their questions and keep things moving forward. Because when they don't have an answer, something goes wrong. Right. So when I was working on the Time Cop pilot at the same time I was doing Lois and Clark, um, I had 300 carpenters and painters working. So you've, you've mentioned this twice now, and I know, I know we see a good portion of it in the scene. And then I, I assume a matte painting of the arc at one point when we really pull out, but how much of the arc for, for Just Say Noah season three, did you guys have to build? Took, uh, I think stage 16 and oh my god the, the biggest stage at Warner Brothers listeners yeah, yeah. built the bow and went off into the as far as the stage would allow us so wow it was massive that's incredible they should have shot that more that that's an incredible amount of work well that's okay um equally too like when it's something like that or in in season four um I, I feel like everything was very heightened at the start of season four when you had the new kryptonians and we had the mothership and the the big council room and and their bedchamber and whatnot are are you getting a heads up generally on something like that or are you only getting heads up because you're you and you're there on set more than the usual production designer and know that these things are coming yeah the production designer on tv works on a minimum of two episodes at the same time so mm -hmm. they're uh, getting the the prep with the direct director who's coming up 
working with them a lot, uh, starting the day with the carpenters and the, and opening the set in the morning with what the show that's happening right now, making sure they're all okay. And it's a bunch of jumping back, back and forth. So, um, I would usually get a first look maybe 10 days before we'd start shooting an episode of a script mm -hmm. because writers don't like to let things out of their hands that are not done. Sure. Everybody wants to get their job done perfectly. So, but I guess I got enough confidence that they trusted me not to go telling people what mm -hmm. was happening in an unfinished story so that I could start uh, a little bit earlier getting things ready. That, yeah, no, that ma that makes sense to me. Sorry, I jumped back into Lois and Clark. I could do this all day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, IMDb is, again, very unreliable. But it seemed like at a certain point, you must have made a, a career shift, a, a chosen another path. Is it fair to say that? And, and, and what led you to what you're doing now? Oh, so uh, <laughs> opportunities for other pilots and other shows in other genres just came up and um, sometimes it's because it was a producer I'd worked with before. And sometimes it's just because people thought I was an expert in something. <laughs> so once I did one medical drama, all of a sudden I was getting offered medical drama after medical drama. Sure. Um, uh, legal Almost typecast in a weird yes. way. Yeah. Legal, yeah. Legal dramas happened that way because people thought, Oh, you can, you're big on courtrooms. I would get a call from a producer in Chicago and they'd say, Hey, we want you to do this series in Chicago. And I'm like, because you did this other series in Chicago. And I go, no, I made LA look like Chicago. <laughs> I made, uh, San Francisco look like Michigan or mm -hmm. you know, th those kind of things would happen. So a little bit of what I was offered or, um, near when I stopped working, I saw a turn, you know, it was after, well, after 9-11, and there was a shift in uh, television so that the part I didn't care for is an awful lot of dramas were into scaring people. Mm. Let's do a story about a nuclear bomb in the middle of Los Angeles. Let's do a story about, you know, horrific idea things that yeah. were reality-based series, not a comic book like we were doing. Yeah. Um, and I... I I started souring on the kind of scripts or shows that were headed my direction because I go, when you scare the populace, you change how we all respond to each other. Um, and I, that bothered me. Yeah. Not like that shifted everything, but also I started a family and late in life, my wife and I started a family and the kids were, um, we had a nanny during the day and my wife would see him every day and I would be away most of the time. And in I'm Los going, Angeles or whatever. Yeah. I, I would get a phone call um, while I'm in Philadelphia and for a, a year and I'd get a phone call on Wednesday night. Please, can you come home now from the little kids? Yeah. There are no airplanes now. It's too late. I'll see you Friday. And my wife's career was booming. She's um, she's in the biotech field, like I said. Mm -hmm. she's, she's fairly famous for her early work, and she's worked at a lot of big and growing pharmaceutical companies. So she got promoted to vice president, and uh, she said, hey, this is great. I don't have to account for my vacation anymore. <laughs> said, That's because you're not going to get any. 
<laughs> which was the truth. I don't remember what point it was in terms of shows, but I just started telling people, no, I'm sorry, I'm not a girl because um, family became really important and I became the stay-at-home dad. I mean, I wasn't young at the time. No, either. but still, the, yeah. but there are so many, especially living out here and you've dealt with more of it than I have, I'm sure, but there are so many people that wouldn't have taken stock like that and not have realized that that's what they need to do. That's, that's admirable as hell, Jim, it really is. It helped her career because then she could work till midnight and I sure. it's fed and in bed and I would... Um, drive downtown and pick her up and bring her home while they slept. And it, um, it let us have a better, steadier family life, which was, was great. So that's wonderful. I became the at home dad. Very cool. Very cool. Um, <laughs> do you still have the creative itch? Like how are, how are you um, staying connected to that part of yourself still? Or is that, has that shifted for you? Um, it's not the day in and day out anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy going to the, taking classes at the Walt Disney Museum, which I, I did. Oh, that's day. cool. They have hand drawing animation classes. Wow. Okay. That sounds incredible. Yeah. It's a nice opportunity and I live really close to it. And so that's exploring a whole nother side. I, I used to make my own little animated films when I was a kid, but mostly by animating objects or people. Not, okay not by hand drawing. And I've always been fascinated and we get fantastic exhibits there where you understand why the look of Bambi is the way it is because they took an artist and took his inspiration for the moments in the film. And that's what they work to. Mm. So that's a little bit of the art stuff. I, back in the nineties, when I was working on Lois and Clark, my father-in-law was a lifelong auto mechanic and he would build and race cars so he restored a Hudson Hornet for my wife. And then she wow. him a junker Hudson for himself because he kept taking hers. <laughs> he restored that. Then he turns to me and goes, it's your turn. And I'm like, no, I am not a car guy. I'm not interested in cars. I don't want an old car. But I saw a movie to catch a thief with uh, mm-hmm. And Grace Kelly, and they drive this roadster through the uh, south of France and along the coast and fall in love. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. If I was going to be a car guy, it'd be for that car. <laughs> was uh, the fledgling days of the internet. And okay. everybody surfed the internet. And I found one for sale that was disassembled in 1977. So it was in boxes. Wow. So I bought that brought it home and nice. Walt and I got the major stuff done uh, fairly quickly and uh i had kids and i was now flying across the country i had no time to work on it so i finished it off in 2019 and we did an event called the great race and how pivotal and circular is my life because that was one of tony curtis's big movies was yeah. the great race and this event is based on the movie really like people who started the great race 40 years ago did it because they admired the movie and they said let's all like do a race across America. Each year they'd go California to Florida, Florida to California, and they got bored with the same idea. So now every single year, the great race is between two places in the US on back roads for 2,300 miles. Wow. The states and the route every year. It's a moving there. There are 130 cars in it. And between the cars and the help people and the staff, 
we're a moving carnival. There's 521 people in motion across the U.S. changing where you're staying overnight every day. That sounds incredible. Is it all too like I, I'm thinking of the Great Race and and like the incredible uh, designs in that too? Is it all kind of heightened in that way, or is um, it more like antique of the cars? The oh, the draw. There's an advantage. People love to come see it because we're all using cars instead of just bringing them to the local show. Sure. We're all- all going long distance and there are some that live the great race in the vein of the original movie like there's a team of these two guys and they have recreated the blues brothers car exactly they bought (laughs) even bought the car from the city of chicago and then it's exact copy with all the little pieces of garbage on the deck (laughs) cigarette butts and and they're having fun and a few years ago they broke down and they didn't want to keep racing. So they went to their wives, go to the casino nearby, withdraw as much money as you can on our credit cards and bring it back. They got out $6,000. They bought a sedan from somebody locally. They painted it a black and white overnight (laughs) speaker on top. It wasn't an exact match anymore, but they kept going. But that's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And there's other, other teams. One team had a giant like 1930s uh, vehicle where a piston went right through the side of the engine and it's a hole this big in the side of the engine. So they're dead for the, so they found a little old lady. She, they bought a big sedan and she's like waving now bye guys, (laughs) but you take care of that car. That was my husband's. And uh, they said, we'll take care of it, ma'am. They drove straight to Home Depot, bought a Sawzall, cut the roof off, cut the roof <laughs> off, mounted the piston on the hood and continued the event. That's amazing. Yeah. And so that perseverance of never giving up. Yep. Another thing that I'm really into. Mm-hmm. So now I'm involved in this event. I broke down badly. I think I broke down twice and fixed it on the road, but uh, I did started doing that in 2019 and have done that every June. My wife does it as my navigator now. She is just loving it this year. Oh, it's fabulous. Did a thousand eleven hundred mile uh road rally in California called the California Melee. Okay. It's through the gold country and up and down canyons and crazy driving. Um, and we did one in uh, New England in September called the Great American Mountain Rally that I was uh, drafted to go to because my car, a 1953 Sunbeam Alpine was the featured car in 1970, in 1953, 70 years ago, when the event started, (laughs) the company that made it flew over Europe's greatest woman driver to be in it. And the next year hit her and Sterling Moss. So um, I had to write an article about doing it because the club in, in the UK um, wanted to, it's like legend, this, this old rally in New yeah. England. So they, it was dubbed the American Monte, Monte Carlo by the press. Okay. And it was a lot of fun, yeah. uh, going through dirt roads and crossing mountains and stuff like they were done back in the old days. Um, but there were two guys this year, they're famous road rally drivers over history. And they took us under their wing and said, you should be doing more of this. You should go do the next event we're doing. And is that the one that's going to take you overseas? Yeah. So we heard on Friday that we're in. And um, so now I got to get the car f- fixed up and ready. To- 
England and France, and we're going to do the Monte Carlo historic in uh, the mountains of France in the first week of February. That that th there's a fairy tale quality to this. Like yeah, that sounds yeah, incredible. Yeah. And, and it blows congratulations. Me away it, yeah. It, I just can't believe it myself. And when you're breaking down on the road, are you anticipating at this point with the car what you're gonna need? Or is it just every time it's a new thing and and who knows with, with an old car like that? Yeah, I have a trunk full of parts now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. And then in front of that trunk is uh just a little bit of space for clothes. Okay. Uh, so in the rear part of the trunk. Um, and I broke down two, two summers ago in Minnesota because a freeze plug came out. It's a little disc this big. And they used to be at every auto parts store and every machine shop. No, they're not Never there again. They cost like 80 cents and I was dead without one. So I won't bore you with the long story of getting it all to work, but eventually we got it back on the road and crossed the finish line. Amazing. The, this, it, it, what an adventure, truly, to have to do this every year. And now you've got the the extra element of getting the car safely overseas, too. That's, that's yeah. very cool. Well, I wish you the best with that, but I truly cannot thank you enough for taking the time to oh, nerd pleasure. out in it's Metropolis so with me. Fun. Yeah, that's really nice to meet you. Really nice to hear that there's people out there who care about this show. It's really cool. Very much. The listeners that have been listening to my ramblings know how cool an opportunity this is for me to meet you. So thank you again. Whenever your racing or, or life brings you down to Los Angeles, uh, I owe you a big steak dinner at the Smokehouse or, or something something fun. And I'd Warner love Brothers to meet you in person. That would be great. Well, please, so, please keep me posted. Great. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, I'm recording this now, having just edited this podcast, and I'm just still kind of in awe of Jim and wish that this podcast was eight times as long uh, so we could have gotten every story from Lois and Clark out of him. It's crazy to me that uh, this interview starts talking about his time at ILM and we just skate right past that to get to Lois and Clark and listening back to it. I'm like, oh my God, there, there must be untold stories of working at Lucasfilm and ILM at the time too. It's just what a cool guy, what a creative, impressive talent. And what a big heart on this guy. Again, he directed some big moments for Lois and Clark in the relationship. And it shows because clearly the guy has a big heart on him, loves his family, loves his job, was super dedicated to his work. I just like how lucky were we as fans that someone that thoughtful and dedicated was behind the camera bringing this play pretend to life for us. Huge thanks to Jim. Huge thanks to everybody for listening for the past eight years, too. There'll be more somethings like this going forward at some point, I'm sure. Uh, but in the meantime, please jump onto the social media, say hi, come join us on the Lois and Clark The Legacy Facebook group, where it's just a Daily Planet bullpen full of nerds just living their best 90s metropolis lives. But uh, I, I don't know what else to say. Can't think of a better way to cap off eight years of a podcast that has brought me more joy and friendship and community than I ever thought it would uh, when we started. So here's to you folks. Here's to Jim and here's to many more podcast times to come, I'm sure. But till then, I've been Matt Truex. Happy anniversary and fuck off, everybody. 
Lois and Clark's The New Podcast of Superman is a daily knockoff production. Please review us on iTunes, follow us on social, and we'll see you in Metropolis. Oh, you've got one of our cups. I, I recently replicated one of your cups. I'll see if I've got an extra around here. This is, this is the nerd of me here, and thank you for putting up with it. But um, you were saying, sorry. Uh.